This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Games in History Class. Tradecraft in Brussels. Reading well to write well. And the Black Dragon Society. The Unknown Army's role-playing game is kickstarting for a new edition right now. And Atlas Games needs your help to make it the greatest new edition of Unknown Armies it can possibly be. Unknown Armies is an occult RPG about broken people conspiring to fix the world. As obsessive denizens of the supernatural underground, you scheme to bend reality before reality bends you. Find out how far you'll go to get what you want. Battle forces fighting tooth and nail to reshape the world into something you'll despise. Master or be mastered by shock gauges, the game's mechanical spine. Each PC can suffer emotional trauma in areas like helplessness, violence, or the unnatural. Any of these can harden you or break you. The occult and unnatural in Unknown Armies are like a secret world that Tim Powers and James Elroy might conspire to create. Your obsessions and sacrifices define reality, but only if you're willing to risk it all. What would you risk to change the world? Your friends? Your family? Your sanity? Your life? Magic finds a way to ask the very most from you until you change the world or are left with nothing. Unknown Armies was created by Greg Stolze and John Tynes. Originally released in 1998, it became an instant classic. Now comes a new edition more ambitious than any other with... Meaty changes to the Unknown Army's cosmos. Substantial revision to the rules of play. Keyboard curling updates for the internet age. Shudder before the fervid majesty of its prestige format. A three-book set with all the awesome stretch goals and add-ons you've come to expect. But Greg, John, and Atlas Games need your help to make this new edition happen. Search Kickstarter for Unknown Armies. Or follow the link at atlas-games.com. Back Unknown Armies today. And change your reality. Change everyone's reality. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Patreon backer Brent Brown asks Ken and Robin, My wife and I homeschool our three sons, ages 10, 12, and 15. We would like to augment their history curriculum with RPGs to make the past events come alive. What systems would you recommend for this purpose? What are some good resources of pivotal moments in history for us to explore? Does our educational goal alter how single shots or campaigns would be structured. Robin, do you have an immediate response to the history curriculum in RPG form? Well, I guess the first, uh, that's a, what we call in the uh, Ken and Robin business a three-part question. So let's uh, start with part uh, one, which is what systems would you use for this? And uh, I think if you're trying to run an educational game for kids, and of course, neither Ken nor I are educators, except in the most poetic of senses. We are still kids, though. Yes. I think you want to make sure that you have a rule set that the uh, rule set itself does not suck up all of the learning and memorization energy <laughs> of the kids uh, so that you uh, want to go with something uh, kind of a lightweight, something that doesn't require or encourage system mastery. Because uh, if you want people to remember the presidency of uh, John Tyler, you don't <laughs> then want... Then too late. <laughs> yeah, yes. It's, it's, well, 
if if they already knew, they wouldn't need a role playing game about it, right? Um, but you don't want them, uh, you know, memorizing the um, the monster book or figuring out the flanking bonuses in, instead of uh, learning whatever it is that you want to learn about whatever. And remember, because John Tyler was multi classed, his flanking bonuses really change at high levels. Exactly. Yes. Um, so I would go for something lightweight. If I can be forgiven for mentioning one of my own things, I think Gumshoe would be a good fit because not only is it lightweight and doesn't require you to memorize things or to reward fiddly system mastery, uh, but it is investigative in nature. And I think that's probably your best hook to get kids to learn things and remember them is to structure the scenarios as investigative scenarios where you're going and trying to find, uh, you know, the first draft of the Gettysburg Address or to uh, discover, you know, who really showed up at the Battle of Thermopylae or uh, what have you. So the idea is that, that that's a rule system about gathering facts. And guess what you're trying to do? You're trying to uh, acquaint kids with the facts of history by also giving them an emotional connection to it. Or And there's t a ton of other lightweight systems that you could uh, use for that. Uh, another one that is on my resume is uh, the hero quest rules, which are generic and very simple. Um, what would you, what would you recommend other than that? Uh, is, is fudge too uh, system mastery? -y? I think fudge is too system buildy -y, uh, because to make fudge work, you have to do a lot of very delicate uh, design to get the outcome that you want. And again, if you are a game designer, that's not such a long road to hoe, but if you're not, um, you can go with the default fudge, sort of, uh, the, the standard, either the version that's out now as fate or the version that actually fate has sort of evolved past that, but that's neither here nor there, or the version that, uh, uh, Grey Ghost publishes, um, that sort of moves you forward into sort of generic adventure, uh, settings on fudge. And that's good. But if you are going to go rules light, I would argue, uh, for a game that already has uh, substantial historical material written for it, because what you want is a game that has, can already play nicely with history. And so I would suggest either basic role-playing, which has a substantial amount of history uh, for some sections of the world and slightly less for other sections, or I would argue for GURPS, because GURPS has a myriad of fairly well-researched, certainly better researched than most elementary and junior high so uh, textbooks are, um, source books for it. GURPS Lite is not a particularly onerous system to master. And if you want, and, and if the kids, you know, are also needing a little math instruction, having them build a vehicle will cure them of that <laughs> real fast. So <laughs> if you quickly exit the boundaries of GURPS Lite. Yes. Uh, no, I, that's, that's my point. But, uh, GURPS Lite covers all the bases you need, certainly for the kind of historical role playing you'll be doing in a world with no magic, because there isn't really magic, uh, with no, you know, um, uh, crazy martial arts or superpowers, because again, those don't exist. If what you're doing is you're trying to play either, you know, I, one hopes adventurous, exciting stories, but stories within the purview of real history, then GURPS Light totally covers that in a relatively simple rule set. And as I mentioned, they've got, you know, dozens, I think, of historical source books, which they've already done all the math for you. So, for example, if you're running Gumshoe, you might say, gosh, I don't know what the Gumshoe rules might be for running Ancient Rome. Well, guess what? GURPS has already figured out what the rules are for running Ancient Rome in GURPS. They're right there in GURPS Rome. So I would suggest um, looking sort of backwards at 
the settings you want to teach and then seeing what has been supported in a game system for those, for those historical moments. So for resources of pivotal moments in history, I would begin with a good narrative history. And you can look at uh, William McNeil's uh, history of uh, the rise of the West. You can look at Argalus's millennium, uh, Norman Davies history of Europe, any good, strong narrative history. And by looking at that narrative history, which is going to be obviously mostly, you know, kings and things, not uh, social history, but it will give you a, sense of when events start changing. Often they will be chaptered out. It'll say the rise of the guilds and you'll, okay, let's go look at the rise of the guilds or the fall of the Roman empire. Well, what's causing those poor Romans to fall so drastically. And you have those change points are marked out for you. There was a, a history book that came out in, I want to say the fifties or sixties. And it was two volumes and it was called something on the order of civilization. And it was a, pretty straightforward narrative history. It was not very interesting, but it did have a section in the back where it would ask sort of questions that would say, what have we learned from this? You know, how, how did these guys rise? How did these guys fall? Because it was a textbook. So I think if you're looking at a decent world history textbook, it should also have questions like that, that will then give you the notion, all right, this is where we want to aim our, our inquiry. Uh, McNeil's uh, history book also has a reading list in it for uh, historical fiction relevant to a, a given historical era and other, at the time, current history books and other resources for studying the era. So I would say, um, if I'm picking one source at all, William McNeil's History of Western Civilization, which is... Uh, which was formatted basically, as I say, as a history book and uh, uh, sort of, a, 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 I think it's a college level textbook and will have a lot of sort of stopping and asking questions like a good textbook does. And there's some also some uh, coffee table books. There's been a number of these over the years that are basically an encyclopedia of world history that give you uh, world chronology. So they show you, you know, here's what's happening in, in Egypt. Here's what's happening in Greece. Uh, or, you know, later on, here's what's happening in China at the same time of uh, this thing is happening in America and so forth. And so that can uh, sort of give you the high points and also kind of allow you to, uh, as you kind of structure your historical campaign, it can allow you to sort of quickly pick out the uh, things that you want to highlight and structure adventures around. So I guess that gets us to the question of how to structure those adventures. And I would argue that you do want to have some character continuity, even though you're jumping between uh, time periods. And that's because the effort of identifying with your character is one that uh, can become a tool for you once it has already happened. And so you don't have to, at the beginning of every session, have a bunch of new characters. Uh, and it allows you also, uh, if you use a, a time travel campaign, but not a cra crazy time watch style time travel campaign, but a more uh, sedate educational one yeah. <laughs> uh, in which the characters visit different time periods in order to uh, find out different things or participate in uh, something or, you know, maybe you could come up with sort of a MacGuffin where your objective is to uh, secure a memento uh, from each of the uh, different historical events that you're taking part in. And in order to secure that memento in each thing, you have to, uh, you know, meet and uh, talk to and deal with Alexander the Great, or then you have to talk to Abraham Lincoln or, uh, you know, whoever it is that you want to focus on. And the 
events that are happening are ones that you can then are the sort of pivotal things that you want to hinge uh, different themes on, whatever those uh, themes happen to be. And so if you do that, I think that you uh, once you achieve buy-in at the beginning and everybody is identifying with their characters, it, it saves a lot of you know gear wrenching at the beginning of every uh, session. I think that that's a good idea is to structure it probably again as a time travel campaign and a relatively sedate one. And uh, don't encourage the kids to drink historical figures under the table. That is uh, left to the. That's uh, a graduate course. That's a graduate. Well, college. Um, If you're, if if they're advanced kids, they can start in college. Um, But I would say one possibility is for, since you have three players, one player and it rotated around is sort of given the homework assignment of playing a, uh, probably a young man, given that that's how it is, but feel free to change it up if you want to, uh, someone from that time period that they're going to go visit so that their job is to build a character in that time and maybe think about the challenges and questions of living in that time, as well as the challenge and questions of researching that time. And if you uh, switch it up so that each player has one session of every three in which they're doing sort of a good bit of the research, but they're also doing a bit of the, no, don't worry, that's not poisonous, we eat it this way type information dumping, then they've got an incentive to learn because it lets them show off for their brothers. And I think that that, as we can all attest, is one of the great incentives in life. Right. I guess it all depends on how much uh, independent work you want the kids to bring to the table and how much you want the uh, experience to be something that you're sort of guiding and and, uh, uh, tutoring them between. And that's Obviously, something that uh, you, homeschooler, will know better than we do. Yes, or listen to a homeschooling podcast, of which I'm sure there are several. Right. And I'm sure there are also there's lots of history books for um, homeschooler parents, and you can just take those and use those for your, uh, you know, the set of events or movements or uh, whatever it is that you uh, want to emphasize. So, uh, is, is there any part of this three-part question that we have failed to answer? I think that we have, we have, um, uh, as befits educators, which we primarily are, I believe that we have labeled all the questions, assigned homework, and can now, uh, sit back, eat our apple, and wait for the next class to come in. And that class is on the other side of this commercial. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. 
arrested. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the director's handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters. Are both available at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. The retinal scan that you had to undergo before listening to this segment alerts you to the fact that you are now entering that most secretive of huts, the Tradecraft Hut. And this time around, we're going to talk about uh, Brussels, which for most of us who uh, are not Belgians, or perhaps (laughs) not near Belgium, have been uh, awakened in the last few weeks to uh, what's happening there. And it turns out that Brussels is not just the place that you think of as having uh, wonderful beers, including the beers that are uh, that get their yeast from pollinating bees and hornets up in the rafters of the brewery. It's not just a place of extremely orderly, beautiful trees, but it is also... Also a, chocolate and lambic. Chocolate and lambic. It is also a place that has uh, uh, not one, uh, not two, but probably about three different intersecting... Uh, shadow worlds uh, going on. Uh, so uh, I guess the key fact here is that uh, Belgium has been uh, historically divided between two linguistic slash ethnic groups, and they're about evenly divided in uh, political influence. And that has meant that there's been very little oxygen for doing anything else in politics except constantly negotiating that very complicated relationship. And uh, those of us who aren't Belgians will, of course, know about the uh, the Flemish and the Walloons being the two sides. One is French, one is Dutch. The way to remember that is that <laughs> uh, French and Flemish both start with the same letter, which means that the Walloons speak French and the Flemish speak Dutch. Because it's Belgium. Because it's Belgium. Um, now, uh, so Ken, where do you want to uh, start the history of uh, Brussels as an unexpected nest of spies? Do we want to start with... Uh, Terror cells, gun running, or the good old-fashioned nation-state on nation-state espionage that occurs at the uh, EU headquarters. I I think we should begin with the reason that lovely Belgium has inherited all of these spies. Uh, We can leave the terrorists and the gun runners to part two if we get there. But the spy spies start being in Belgium once they decide to make Belgium both the capital of Europe and therefore the headquarters of NATO. And it is NATO that acts as the first magnet for, of course, all the Soviet bloc spies, because with 10 or a dozen countries going up to, you know, what is it, 20 or 30 now, all of them having credentialed representatives there, that gives a, uh, a hostile spy agency, whether it be the KGB back in the old days or the Chinese now, a lot of soft targets. So, for example, in 2008, it was the Estonian uh, representative to the uh, to, to NATO in Belgium who turned out to have been flipped by the the so by the Russians and was passing them lots of classified NATO and EU uh, data. And 
one imagines that with, you know, 26 or however many it is member countries, the SVR, the FSB just has to sort of push on 26 different buttons. And the first one that appellate comes out, that's where they go after you. You don't have a single country that can have unified uh, security precautions. Now the Belgian uh, secret uh, uh, police and the Belgian intelligence services say that NATO is a harder target than the EU, which makes sense. NATO is a military alliance. And so military security is under underway, but obviously NATO is guarding a lot of very, very important secrets. But since they do government-to-government sharing, a lot of that filters down into the EU. And then also, once you start being a uh, spy for uh, economic espionage or financial espionage, then Belgium uh, blows up because lots of companies have headquarters in Brussels because it's, again, the center of the EU's activity. And And the line these days between nation-state espionage and... uh Industrial espionage is blurry to say the least. At least, yes. But there's there, there's something on the order of 2,500 international agencies have headquarters in Brussels, plus um, uh, the SWIFT, which are the guys that track terrorist bank accounts, plus um, uh, lots and lots of international companies, plus uh, the International Trade Union Confederation, World Customs Organization, um, and plenty of just straight up, you know, Belgian banks and whatnot that have their various tendrils in various other parts of the country, especially the Congo, which used to be the Belgian colonial territory. And so where, whenever there is distress in the Congo, which is always, and whenever there are illegal mon- money operations in the Congo, which is always, and whenever there are blood diamonds coming out of the Congo, which is pretty often, it winds up in Belgium, Antwerp uh, being the biggest uh, diamond cutting uh, entrepot in the world again, acts basically as a way that you can transfer money invisibly between people, uh, even legitimately, much less on a covert scale if you've stolen the diamonds or if they're blood diamonds or whatnot. So Belgium becomes a really attractive place. And I think I've slipped this into uh, at least gun runners and mercenaries, possibly terrorists already, um, for any number of covert activities to go on. And there's uh, 20,000 lobbyists, 5,000 diplomats, uh, 60,000 people with dis- diplomatic passports in uh, in Brussels. It just doesn't take that much to sneak a spy in there. And so as a result, it's a shooting gallery. And finally, the um, uh, Belgian intelligence service has about 600 staff. And the Belgian Sûreté, the state security, also has about 600 staff. So they're overworked just looking at the people who have legitimate business to be there, right. much and less... most of their time is spent on bureaucratic infighting because... Yes, because half of them, I'm sure, are Walloons and half of them are Flemish. Right, and and just even more so than any other bureaucracy. I mean, bureaucratic infighting is certainly not uh, exclusive to... Uh, was not invented <laughs> as, by the Belgians. As a, as a perfected, perhaps, yes. much like chocolate. Right, because the... the Probably whenever there's a political crisis is just add another layer of bureaucracy or another bureau. So, for example, there in the city of Brussels, there are five different police organizations who could theoretically have full or partial jurisdiction over a crime. And uh, guess what they spend most of their time doing? Fighting each other and shifting blame. And yes. <laughs> uh, so this becomes... Shocker. Yes. So this becomes an ideal haven uh, for... Uh, people who want to engage in illegal activities because the uh, chances of 
any of those five organizations trade, uh, sharing information with each other are very low, let alone uh, sharing them with the rest of the uh, Western uh, security establishment. And what we've learned in, in the wake of the uh, uh, terror attacks is that there's a high level of frustration between uh, the uh, rest of the Western security apparatus and the various agencies in uh, in Belgium, especially the French, who of course are right over the border and um, have maintain open borders between Belgium and France as part of the whole Schengen principle of open borders. And given that the last border France would want to close is the one to Brussels, they are under, I'm sure, high political and economic pressure to leave the border unguarded. But if the Belgian police aren't going to do anything to track these guys down, then it really, really angers the French uh, secret services. Uh, and they are not, sh- and they say it in like Anglophone publications, which means they're super angry about it because normally they're, they, uh, they, they keep a, a very professional attitude most times. So uh, given that it is uh, easy, Oh, do we want to talk about gun running? How Brussels became the, break of bulk point in Western Europe for sure, Eastern sure. European guns. Lead us, lead us, if you will, through the magical world of, of, of gun running in Belgium. And then I will, uh, knock, uh, the Belgian police again. And then we can get, more <laughs> well, stuff. basically it is because of that, that the, uh, as, uh, Eastern European, uh, criminals, uh, entered uh, the West in the wake of the fall of the iron curtain, they, you know, looked for places where they could do business unimpeded. And yes, it turned out that, uh, the policing was not particularly great in Brussels, and so they uh, started to set up their operations there. And although there have been uh, crackdowns in recent years, it's still a, a, a thriving operation. And so if, if you're in your Knights Black Agents or other game that you want to have your uh, character go and get your bag full of guns, which is uh, otherwise difficult to, uh, to get in Europe, uh, you want to have them going... Uh, to uh, somewhere in Belgium where they can meet with some uh, uh, their favorite Eastern European suppliers who can hook them up. There, there is a there is a great uh, website called targetbrussels.be, which is just a list of awful spy activity that has happened in in Brussels uh, <laughs> over and over and over. So and so, uh, some of what we are saying is is being taken from that, but there's so much more than we can get to in a mere uh, single hut. It's also a, a hotbed of cyber espionage. It turns out the Chinese uh, cyber espionage units that are attached to the Guanbu, I believe, have a uh, they have a whole server there uh, in in Brussels, nestled with all the other servers. So they don't even have to you know uh, pay for the the cable fee. I guess they they can just run everything out of Brussels. And a, a Belgian cryptographer, uh, Jean Jacques Kiscater, what a great name, and he teaches at the University of Louvain. Um, he got, uh, hacked by clicking on a bogus LinkedIn invitation. So all beware when you not to have LinkedIn. those LinkedIn invitations. That's why dumping them all to your email and ignoring them forever is in fact the responsible thing to do, Robin. And, and, and I should mention that the, up until very recently, and it may still be true, the Belgian police operated under very, very restrictive laws of, of what they could do. So for example, night raids were, uh, either illegal or they were at the very least against Belgian police procedure. So if you're a criminal in Belgium, it's like the purge. You, you just, just have to sort of, sundown. you know, wait until sundown and then you can just go and do anything you want. Uh, and, and just the notion that in the 21st century, after all the god awfulness that has happened, or even after a cursory look at literally any other city in the world, that the notion of, well, no night raids, that would be inconvenient or mean 
is still a thing in, you know, what is ostensibly a major European capital is just mind boggling. So, uh, aside from going to meet your favorite gun runner things that, uh, nice black <laughs> agents night. or other <laughs> modern espionage, uh, PCs could do in Belgium or Brussels include. Well, to begin with, um, there's vanishing into this crowd. I mean, in, in uh, nice black agents, certainly if you can get into Belgium, you can lower your heat, uh, by merely blending in with the 60,000 uh, foreign Eurocrats and God knows how many Belgian Eurocrats are there. Right. Heat you, being the mechanical measure of just how much attention is being paid to you by people you want to get away yes. from. There's also a number of, um, as you mentioned, uh, gun runners. There's a big uh, drugs trade, the illegal diamonds trade I mentioned already coming out of uh, the Congo. The Congolese is one of the major mafias in uh, Belgium. And every so often the security state takes a break from stopping Iranian, Chinese, Russian, American, and um, uh, <laughs> miscellaneous other spies and goes after uh, the Congolese mafia. But because again, they have such a tiny, tiny uh, force for their state security, their equivalent of the FBI, they, they simply can't keep a handle on it. So the, the Congolese and to a lesser extent, the Moroccans, continue to operate uh, through the uh, Belgian criminal underground and the Congolese uh, government, at least uh, usually sends an ambassador and an ambassadorial team to Brussels who are in tight with the mob because that's how they got their job in the first place. So the mob is operating in many cases under diplomatic cover. And so you have uh, all manner of challenges for your Knights Black agents team that might be wanting to figure out, if your vampires, for example, uh, are full of hemorrhagic fever, uh, what's coming up here from tropical Africa and why is it under a diplomatic pouch? And if I was going to pick a place where a lot of uh, vampires were going to uh, gather and uh, feed off the, uh, the complacent and have free reign at night, well, it, it might well be Brussels and, and the EU. And the other thing um, is that, of course, because it's the capital of the EU and it's uh, where a lot of the EU sort of... Um, uh, bureaucracy is tunneled up. There's a lot of lobbyists uh, for not ev not just, you know, Parma Ham or whatever, but also for various national dissident groups. So if you are a Macedonian organization that may or may not be a Macedonian terrorist organization, or you are a Bulgarian organization that may or may not be a hardcore Bulgarian fascist political party, you've got an office in Brussels. So you've got a great route from Brussels to the adventure uh, in a nice black agents game or the adventure can get brought uh, as these things tend to get brought to the place where all these lobbyists are hanging out. Um, you know, the, I think the Capitol police is bigger than 600 people. So the fact that the, the, the Belgians simply have no way to monitor this activity is what allows so much of it to flourish. Uh, well, it'll be interesting in the future to see uh, how much they can turn that around. But until then, it's time for us to uh, make our way to our next hut and or segment.
You love dice. Dice love you. Now, finally, you can display this mutual love affair to the jealous gaze of admiring friends. With Dice Rendezvous with Randomness. A gorgeous coffee table art photo book all about dice. The most adventurous project yet from our friends at Askfagelm. Explore every side of dice through the brilliant lens of photographer Mans Daneman. After hours of photography, real, actual, no Photoshop photography, you can gaze at wonder at burning dice, fireworks melty dice, oiled dice, laser dice, rainbow making dice, kaleidoscope dice, Cthulhu dice that, with the aid of an octopus, lashed out at the photographer's knee and sent him to surgery. And generally, dice, dice, dice. Want highlight photos as posters, canvas or gallery prints? Ask Fagelm has you covered. With their Kickstarter, Dice Rendezvous with Randomness. Go to Kickstarter and search Dice Rendezvous with Randomness. This show also made possible by generous patrons precisely like Rich Spainauer, Brendan Power, Craig Maloney, Jeremy French, Kevin J. Maroney. Stand shield to shield with this epic cohort by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com, Ken and Robin. The chutter of IBM's selectric keys, the glug-glug-glug of mid-brand bourbon, and the <laughs> continued irritation at the name of this hut tell us we must have entered the how-to-write-good precincts where we learn how to write good. Robin, uh, besides naming huts, what can we learn as writers from this hut? So, when I uh, talk to aspiring uh, writers... Uh, and uh, I use aspiring writers rather than emerging writers in this context because often there are people who uh, think they want to write something but have not yet begun to submit themselves to the discipline of that. Uh, I have a number of uh, pieces of advice that people don't want to hear. <laughs> yes. Well, thank God. Yes. Um, <laughs> and uh, among them is uh, you must read widely. If you want to write, you've got to do a lot of reading. And that you must read outside of your comfort zone. That if you are not already somebody who reads a bunch of different things in a, a number of genres, rather than the one that you want to write in and feel most comfortable reading, uh, you are uh, missing a big step and are unlikely to come up with a, or have evolved, a pro style that is distinctive. And in fact, what you will have is something that's a warmed over version of what is probably a warmed over version of a warmed over version. If you're reading other people who also only read in their one selected genre, I'm not suggesting that everybody can possibly love every single genre of fiction and nonfiction. That's an absurd proposition, but I highly recommend that you find a bunch of them. And I uh, recommend something else that uh, genre and uh, fantasy, science fiction aspiring writers uh, are sometimes uh, taken aback by is my suggestion that they find the part of contemporary literary fiction that they like, and there's some work involved in that probably, and read some of that too, because that's where the uh, more cutting edge uh, style is going to uh, come from, and that's where you're going to be able to start to find people to swirl around in your writing cranium and you don't want to spit out something that's exactly like a Kurt Vonnegut novel. Yes, well, uh, maybe you, you do actually, but it's uh, good luck. <laughs> well, I, I did actually a while ago read a, a novel by a first novel by a fresh praised young novelist who never surfaced again. And he ha did have a really fresh, exciting 
literary style. The problem was it was Kurt Vonnegut's. <laughs> so ideally what you were uh, working toward is a set of influences that are so disparate that once you subconsciously allow them all to sort of uh, steep and filter through your own writing process, that they are you as unique to you is if you had gone off into a cave for 20 years, made up your own language and written your books in that language, because <laughs> that second one has a number of logistical and commercial uh, drawbacks to it. Although I have a list of writers who can start that immediately. <laughs> well, the, 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 the writer exile program is, that's a, a different one. Um, that's time machines again. The, uh, I would say that one of the things that is in, that useful about reading widely is because even if you're reading B list or God forbid C list material in a different genre, that C list or B list writer will at least be absorbing a different thin, uncharacteristic gruel than a fantasy <laughs> writer will be. Yes. So if an urban fantasy writer is sounding like sort of a bad average of Emma Bull and Charles DeLint and 40 other people and Jim Butcher now, no doubt, uh, at least the bad crime writer is going to sound like a bad average of Ian Rankin and uh, Michael Canelli and other people who are not sounding like urban fantasy. And then if you read mediocre mysteries, they're going to sound like a different average. So even I mean, I'm not, it's, I'm you obviously, ideally you hunt up the A-list stuff in every genre and you read that. But if you w find yourself reading in a different genre than the one that you are writing in, you will at the very least be getting a different flavor of, of, of gruel to dump into your gruel. Now, the goal is to find the best people in a given genre. And some of those are going to be the, the big award winners. And they're going to be people that are like Thomas Pynchon. And you're going to say, well, obviously everyone should read Thomas Pynchon. What's wrong with you? But some of them are going to be people who are either, um, uh, no longer being read. You know, you might discover that, uh, Arthur Mackin or George Gissing are the kinds of people that you like reading because you like that sort of, uh, late Victorian, uh, rumbly bumble, or you might go all the way back and, and discover that, um, uh, uh, 17th century, uh, novels of manners are, are, are more interesting, or you go to another country and you find out that you may not really care for what's being written in modern fiction in America, but the modern fiction in India or Brazil is actually super interesting to you and, or Turkey, where, which is another place that, uh, a lot of, uh, really great modern fiction is coming out of. So you are not stuck reading the thin watery gruel of an Iowa writers program any more than you should be stuck reading the thin watery gruel of the urban fantasy shelves. You have lots of, uh, just like in the, in the food hut, you have lots of spices to reach out and pull in and, and wake up your flavor. There are more great books than you can possibly read before you die. Yes. Um, one way to make that process more efficient is don't be a dutiful reader. If you are 15% uh, of the way into a novel and you are finding it a hard slog and you're not picking it up again, uh, put it down. Move on to the next one. That one has not uh, captivated you enough to make you keep reading. And so that's where uh, relying on a library system uh, helps because you can uh, uh, reject... Uh, Fiction-wise, I tend to uh, reject in a few pages or chapters two out of the, th of, of the three books that I pick up. Um, and uh, in uh, literary fiction in particular, there's such a wide range of styles. Uh, I think right now, literary fiction is going through a bit of a, a rough patch, which if uh, people want to hear about that, they can tell us on the uh, Patreon site, and I can go into more detail on, on that. But Right now, our entire lifetimes. Yes. But there's also <laughs> a lot of great stuff. 
and and also there's a lot of uh, really brilliant genre stuff masquerading as literary fiction. It just happens to be marketed on uh, the, those other shelves. Um, you were mentioning uh, older literature. One little uh, warning note that I would sound there is, by all means, read older fiction because there are some techniques that have been abandoned that you will seem very clever if you pick them up again and make them fresh. But don't only read uh, stuff, particularly don't only read stuff that's like 30 to 40 years ago, because weirdly, beginning writers quite often tend to adopt a kind of an old-fashioned, sort of dated 30s, 40s, 50s style, often kind of a movie-based style rather than a literary style. Uh, but uh, people tend to write in a, when they're starting out in a, in a kind of oddly uh, awkward uh, kind of dated style, even though they're writing now. And that uh, I'm not entirely sure why that happens, but it sure happens a lot. So make sure that you also uh, read uh, you know, new stuff uh, in, in whatever taste range you're looking at. And, you know, know, know why you like the things that you like. And uh, there are some writers that you want to make sure that you read something else other than their work before you go to the writing uh, table that day. There are certain writers whose uh, stylized style is so infectious that it can mess you up if you're uh, not careful of leaving it with other things. Um, Hunter S. Thompson uh, comes to mind there. <laughs> or of Ram Davidson, which I apparently have <laughs> never read anything but, if you go by my output now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. And there's a certain point at which creating your, your pro style evolves as an unconscious process. Uh, you know, when you're starting to write or, you know, when you're writing, you will quite often write something and you'll either look at it right away or when you look at it the next game, oh my what the, oh, that's, oh, and, you know, you'll really hate what you've written and you don't necessarily have 100% conscious control over your style and it'll evolve over time. And once you mature as a writer, you will have your style for good or for ill. But the way to make it more likely that that is for good is to put all sorts of things in that hopper, things that don't normally go together. And, you you know, if you take, uh, you know, a rhythm from here and a vo vocabulary from here and uh, a... Uh, spareness from uh, this area and a use of direct address from here. Uh, and if they're all, you know, mushed up enough like a like a mash, like a white dog of your literary style, uh, eventually what comes out will be you because you were the one who uh, assembled all of those influences uh, together in your head. Yeah, it won't be uh, Lovecraft plus Westlake plus uh, Davidson plus Powers. It'll be the parts of Lovecraft, Westlake, Davidson, and Powers that directly appealed to you, that magnetically attracted you. And so, therefore, that combination, and uh, please don't only have four authors, don't make the mistake I made, um, and uh, <laughs> that that combination will then express itself through you because you'll be the, the lens through which that original light is being refracted into a, a new beam. Um, and as, as the next guy, you know, Robin, uh, uh, for his sins could write something influenced by Lovecraft, Davidson powers and Westlake, but Robin's version of those four writers would be different from my version of those four writers because Robin pulls different elements from each of those four writers. Right. right? But if, you know, we both write something that is based on, uh, Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler, Ross McDonald and Cornell Woolrick. Well, it's going to be a little more similary. It's going to be a lot of, a little more similar and your influences will show or, or God forbid we base our stuff, our stuff on people who read all four of those writers or people who read only people who read those writers. 
um, then you, there's no hope for you because, you know, garbage in, garbage out, right? There's no, I mean, Homer heard a lot of poetry before he wrote the Iliad. Nothing springs completely de novo out of the head. All of it comes out of somewhere else. Right. And if that isn't a thesis statement and a button for this segment, I know neither buttons nor thesis statements. So let us move on. Beneath the headlines, deep in the shadow world of international security, an elite corps of covert operatives grab up their stingrays, Kevlar vests, and M4s to seek and destroy the eldritch adversaries of the Cthulhu mythos. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you are one of those agents. You're the one they call when unnatural horrors seep into the world. You fight to keep cosmic evil from claiming human lives and sanity. You conspire to cover it all up so no one else must see what you've seen or learn the terrible truths you've discovered. The Quick Start rulebook of Delta Green Need to Know includes everything you need to play Delta Green. Complete rules for conducting investigations, overcoming crises, fighting for your life, and watching your sanity slip away! Complete rules for character creation. Six characters ready to play. At Delta Green Operation, Last Things Last ready for the handler, the game moderator, to introduce your team to Delta Green tonight. The physical edition of Delta Green Needs to Know also comes with a sturdy four-panel screen loaded with data to help the handler run a fast-paced, suspenseful game and sinister wraparound art to keep the players terrified. This is only the beginning. Deeper terrors can be found in Delta Green the role-playing game and its source books, available from Arc Dream Publishing. It's time to wend ourselves once more up the creaky cobweb stairs that lead us to the parlor, uh, the drawing room, as it were, of the consulting occultist. And uh, that occultist is uh, ready and waiting to answer a Ken and Robin Patreon backer question. And that backer is Stuart Robertson. And he would like to know more about the Black Dragon and Black Ocean Societies. And as I was skimming the topic that the consulting occultist is going to address, it strikes me that this might be one of those that is about the difference between historical reality and myth that is accrued later, perhaps even myth that has been glued onto it by us in the role-playing game industry. But uh, before we get to that, uh, Ken, tell us uh, who these uh, two related paramilitary Japanese secret societies uh, were and when they started and, and what is uh, mineable about them. Okay. Um, basically, who they were was groups that began as pressure groups on Japanese society. So uh, the Black Ocean Society, which is the first of them, uh, Gen Yosha, um, uh, comes from the uh, Genkai Nara, the strait that separates Kyushu from Korea. That was the, the, the name of the group. And the name of the group uh, and the group originally began to sort of get rid of all this new, uh, soft-headed, uh, modern liberal government by the emperor and go back and, to the and good what old time frame. Are we talking? This is the 1880, and so they wanted to um, uh, to go back to the good old samurai tradition. Uh, and what better way to restore the samurai tradition than 
invade Korea because uh, the Black Ocean, the ocean that separates Japan from Korea. So they're like, let's go invade Korea, just like we did in the 1590s. And didn't that work out? Great. And to all the Japanese historians who said, no, actually, it was a horrible disaster. <laughs> and it may have been how Hideyoshi killed off the samurai cast in the first place. It means you get to be the bad guys in a bunch of cool Korean movies. It does so mean you that. get to be the bad guys in a bunch of cool movies. But more to the point, the uh, Black Ocean said, no, now, now we are better because we have all of these awesome Western weapons that you insisted we change society to get. So let's use them to invade things just like the Westerners do. The founder was a guy named uh, Mitsuru Toyama, who was sort of a, uh, a guru, the, the ideologist or the guru, the, it was actually founded by a rich guy because all these groups are founded by a rich guy. But, um, uh, Toyama. You need canopies to have a secret society. Somebody's got to pay for those. Right. Yeah. You've got to have a headquarters and uniforms and, you know, all pay for all the stuff. So, uh, the bankroller is a guy named Kotaro Hiroka, but Mitsuru Toyama is the, um, uh, is the guru, the, 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 the um, ideologist, the ideologist, as I said. And what he realized is we can't just be doing this with our samurai. We also need to expand Japanese influence through what we call now soft power. And so therefore, um, he would send people out to found or muscle in on criminal enterprises in the target areas. So not just in Japan, but also in China and in Korea and in uh, the broad scope of East Asia, they would set up bordellos, they would set up gambling rings, they would set up numbers rackets, and then based out of those already dodgy operations, they could insert their trained samurai operatives who would engage in whatever political action was necessary. And suddenly the Japanese government sort of noticed that, hey, we've got a, a, a private intelligence uh, service working for us. And some parts of the government, those parts that were already sort of excited about invading China and Korea, said, uh, let's uh, go ahead and use these guys because they're providing us wonderful product. And uh, the uh, Black Ocean sort of, you know, uh, scuntered along and as a group that fully embraced the criminal aspect of its of its activities, it becomes more and more embarrassing for the increasingly respectable Japanese government to have anything to do with it. And they're, you know, sort of thinking, well, we don't really want to have this uh, bunch of, of brothel keepers and, and uh, numbers runners uh, running our uh, foreign policy. We would rather have a bunch of nice guys um, and those nice guys <laughs> by nice. We mean not, not, not overtly not criminal, overtly not nice criminal. in any other way. Um, uh, and, and those guys were the Kokur Yukai, which is the Amur river society, meaning that they want Japan's frontier to be the Amur river, which is the border between uh, China and Russia. And uh, the, uh, the Amur river in Chinese is black dragon river, a uh, high long Jiang. And so, it becomes the Black Dragon Society because the Japanese are at least as eager to have cool-sounding Japanese badass names as Americans are. And this is in the 19-aughts, roughly, that this transformation occurred? This occurs? is 1901 that the uh, Black Dragon is formed as a specific um, uh, uh, foreign policy pressure group, basically. It's like the Brookings Institution or something. Except, of course, it's a Brookings Institution that has its own private spy force, has... Uh, incredibly high level connections in the Navy, especially, and, uh, in the Army as well. And then also, uh, runs the Black Ocean as sort of a deniable, uh, intel wash that it can then sort of, um, uh, uh, sift the product and provide it, 
uh, uh, laundered for the Japanese government to look at. Right. Because if a criminal network is still making a lot of money, uh, it's going yeah, to... It's not gonna going away. Today. <laughs> Perhaps the, the org chart is going to be slightly uh, rearranged or redrawn for public uh, consumption anyway. So uh, the uh, adept uh, listener uh, will note that so far there's no mention of the occult here. Uh, now, uh, often the... Uh, Japanese far right does have an interest in Shintoism, but is there an actual historical occult angle to uh, either of these organizations? The occult angle in the actual real world, I suspect the occult angle is just that uh, the Black Ocean begins as a secret society, and so therefore it will have secret society rituals. Uh, also, as it begins to infiltrate the Chinese underworld, it has to compete with the triads, who also have an occult aspect to their operation. Uh, the best ones all claim to have come down from the uh, Shaolin mountain and etc. And so the uh, black ocean has to develop its own occult attitudes, at least to meet the triads on level ground. Um, the creation of the mythical uh, warrior Shinto, that is an ideological project of the same sorts of people that are funding uh, the black dragon society deliberately adds a spiritual background to, uh, you know, things like, you know, spying and military activity. And that can tend, as you, as you point out, into an occult sounding, at least to Western ears, um, uh, approach to the world. Now, right. were they out engaging in, uh, black magic rituals and trying to summon up deep ones and doing all manner of other things? Probably not. Uh, they, they don't have even, as far as I am able to tell, and there's not a lot of straight up English language histories of, uh, the Black Dragon, so who knows. But the, uh, but there does not, does not seem to be even the degree of, um, uh, of, of fond, uh, love for the occult that the British Secret Service had, much less the German one, which was, of course, uh, even before the, the war was full of crazy mystic Aryanists and, uh, under the Nazis, of course, was half crazy right. mystic era. So, so much so that you could write a book about it, Ken. At least one, several, as it transpires. Um, so the, so the Japanese, uh, although it sounds cool to say that, um, uh, the leader of the Black Dragon is known as the Dark Side Emperor, that doesn't actually mean anything. It just sounds cool because we're adding that sort of, uh, Japanoiserie that we add when we watch, um, a really awesome anime or something. I don't think that it, it, it means that they're actually worshiping some sort of shadow demon. So is the uh, Black Dragon Society is basically the Japanese mirror of the Ahanurba a creation of Call of Cthulhu supplements? Uh, there is a Japanese parapsychological warfare unit that's operating. There are certainly Japanese uh, who believe very, very strongly in um, uh, what we would consider magic. Uh, and this is, you know, one of the things that fascinates Americans starting in the 1890s going down to now, uh, about the Japan, Japanese society is that they don't have the sort of weird, embarrassed Western notion about astrology or, um, uh, whatever that, that we do now. They're like, no, that's just part of the way the world operates and we just move forward and know right. what our blood Their type split is. The between science and the esoteric didn't occur or not in the same it, way. It occurred in a different philosophical framework and, then they sort of imported our split wholesale without actually interrogating it, which is part of what gave them all the uh, headaches that they've worked out in anime. Um, <laughs> but, but the degree to which the paraphysical experimentation, uh, you know, uh, brain science and whatnot, the same way that the Soviets were doing was carried out 
the, the degree to which the Black Dragon was deliberately running that, I think that's a creation. The Black Dragon had common personnel, for example, with Unit 731, which was the uh, biological warfare uh, lab in, in Manchuria that the Japanese ran. So the Black Dragon has guys in Unit 70, 731, but that's sort of like saying that um, uh, the Mormons have guys in the FBI. The Mormons aren't running the FBI. The FBI is just selecting for people with short haircuts who uh, probably aren't going to get into trouble. So Unit 731 is selecting for people who are fanatical haters of all that is not Japanese, so they don't mind giving everyone the plague. And so it's, a, it's sort of a recruiting interest, right? Right. Uh, so uh, are there uh, notable... Uh, cool uses of the Black Dragon Society once you do uh, put a layer of Cthulhu make up on him? I think even before you put the layer of Cthulhu make up, there's something neat about a Japanese secret society that by 1915 has agents in place at the Suez and Panama canals. That's just neat, right? They run a really professional, or uh, I don't know how professional it is, but they run a really lean, well-thought-out strategically uh, spy service in the same way that they uh, come up with a lot of the things that we've done in the West and they just sort of immediately adopt the best practices because they didn't have to spend 500 years figuring out what they were. The Japanese, uh, the Black Dragon turned out to be a, a much more effective foreign intelligence service for its weight than a lot of foreign intelligence services before or since. But once you start adding magic, yeah, obviously the sky's the limit because you can, you can go as deep as you want into uh, the, uh, for example, the, there's a number of um, uh, of, of very uh, mystical anti-Western movements uh, throughout Asia. Uh, the boxers in China, um, the Tonghawk in Korea, the Black Dragon made common cause with those guys, as, uh, the Black Ocean made common cause with those guys in many cases, and the Black Dragon later, because they were handy people to point at the West. So if you're looking for a mysterious bunch of, of, of mystics, all of whom believe that the West must be destroyed, um, look no farther. And once you start adding real magic to it, um, you have sort of a Japanese Fu Manchu situation, except magic instead of mad science. Although there's plenty, as I alluded previously, of mad science as well. And of course, the historical record doesn't have any connection between uh, the black dragon and ninjas because ninjas don't show up in a historical record they're <laughs> or proving that they were of their part ninjas of, yes exactly so you've uh, you've got that to play with so you could uh certainly in a game like feng shui you could make a uh, modern recurrence of that organization be uh you know the japanese wing of the guiding hand as infiltrated and corrupted and destroyed by the eaters of the lotus or, or, uh, or what have you so so I think uh, we've uh, well answered the question to the extent that it uh, can be answered. So it's time for us to leave some of those uh, spiky caltrop things and maybe a few smoke bombs uh, to protect our exit and head out of this podcast and we'll rejoin you all next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Dice Rendezvous with Randomness. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash canonrobin. Join the same exclusive yet self-selecting club as... Kevin J. Maroney. Mark Giles. Oli Toivonen. Stefko and Pedro Garcia on Twitter. He's at Kenneth Height and he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time. And once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>